We're looking at John 14, verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> John 14, 1 through 18. Would you give your give ear to the reading of God's word? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am the Father, I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, you call us to persevere, to stand in confidence, so we can enter your presence through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the new and the living way. Let us this morning draw near to you with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. We know, O oh Lord, this can only be if we're in your word. Open our hearts to hear the truth of your word. Open them so that you can guide us in taking that truth and applying it in our lives. Help us to grow. Help us to grow and become stronger and more effective witnesses for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We look this morning at a part of, of Christ's address to his disciples just minutes before his arrest. They left the upper room where they celebrated the last Passover and the first communion supper. They're walking toward the Mount of Olives, and as they walk, Jesus is comforting them about his having to leave them. The disciples are filled with grief as they consider parting with their master. They have a great concern about what might become of them without their Lord. He's been the source of their strength and courage while he was with them. He supported them, 
kept them in the strength they needed to carry forward. He kept their hearts filled with hope. If he leaves them, they're concerned. They'll become like sheep without a shepherd, making them vulnerable to attacks from all kinds of enemies. Christ, knowing the concerns of their hearts, seeks to ease their fears and give them comfort. He assures them that they will be clothed in prayer. They will be given power sufficient to carry them through. Matthew Henry puts it this way. As Christ has all power, they, in his name, should have great power both in heaven and in earth. I don't believe that any of us could really know the depth of despair these men were feeling at this very moment as they walked to the Mount of Olives. Jesus knew. He prepares them for an even deeper despair as they approach his arrest and their scattering. Running away and hiding behind locked doors. Only Peter. Only Peter wants to stand with Christ. But as you know, he lost his nerve when questioned by a servant girl in the courtyard of the high priest. Peter shows us the feeling of hopelessness all of these men were struggling with. Peter in his denial brought himself to the brink of absolute despair. He fell on his knees. He wept from his heart at his failure. Jesus knew what was coming on them. He had compassion for them. So he talks to them about what it means to believe in him. In this talk, he covers some very important promises made to all who believe and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. First, he speaks of the promise of works. Second, he talks about answered prayer. Third, he explains the promise of another helper. Last, he shows them the promise of God's presence. There are some of the most, these are some of the most precious promises given to believers. We are no different than these first disciples. Our fears mirror theirs. We need to hear these promises over and over and over again. We need to know that our Lord has prepared for us things that can give us strength and courage. So let's look at these words of our Lord and learn from them. Our text this morning is John 12, 14, verses 12 through 18. Christ begins this discussion with a clear statement about the importance of these coming words. Whenever our Lord was about to make an extremely important statement, he always introduced it with certain words. John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now here in the New King James Version, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, the more literal translation would be something along the lines of verily, verily, I say unto you, or some translations use truly, truly, I say unto you. The idea is that Christ wants to get their attention because he knows how important these words will be to them. It was necessary here on the mount or the road to the Mount of Olives that this wonderful announcement, and this was a wonderful announcement, should receive such confirmation to its importance because of its wide extent. If Jesus had ascribed this power 
of doing greater works than he did in his earthly walk to apostle, prophet, or saint, there should have been no need to assure that it was true. They would have been doing it right then. But as we learn, that power, that these powers are transcendent, they come down from God. And in the reach, they come down in the reach of, of every ordinary believer out there to learn that anyone who believes may be able to outdo the miracles of Jesus is as startling as it is comforting. What makes this so important for the disciples and us to understand? It's that Christ leading only opens the door for the believer to rise, to be witnesses of all that Christ set into motion with his sacrifice. This thing that he wants the disciples to understand is that his absence will not mean a loss of power for them to perform miracles. He will continue from heaven to be the power behind their work. We find a glorious promise is here given. It is given to everyone who keeps on believing. He says, he who believes in me, what will that person do? He who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall also do. He will do the works which Jesus does, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now that's speaking to us that we can go out and do greater works than God, than Christ could do? What is he talking about? He's talking about carrying the gospel to a lost and dying world. This will not be despite the fact Jesus returns to the Father, but because he returns to the Father. What this means is that, that the very departure of Christ will benefit the disciples, and it will also benefit us as the future church. This is what this table is showing you. This is the picture it's painting. Without his resurrection, the gospel cannot be broadcast throughout the world. As a result of his departure, the disciples will perform not only the works Jesus has been doing, such as physical miracles, but also greater works than these miracles, namely spiritual miracles in the hearts of people. It's clear as you read through the gospels, Jesus' main works had been in the physical realm performed mainly among the Jews. He now speaks of greater works. He's looking forward to the conversion of the Gentiles. These surely are of a higher character and a vaster extent. He explains this in his prayer in John 17, 20. I do not pray for these alone, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. This is a prayer for all believers across all ages. This power that will fill them with the strength and courage to go into a hostile and evil world and carry the message of salvation and hope to a lost and dying world comes only because of a resurrected Lord. Here on this table, you see what Christ did on this earth for sinful man and what he is doing from heaven for all who believe today. The conversion of God's elect from the Gentiles, the work of Peter in the home of Cornelius, the work of Paul in his missionary journeys could never have been done 
before Christ's death and resurrection. Why? It could not be done because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out on men. For that very reason, the wall of separation was still in force. But with the work of Christ on earth completed, his death, resurrection, ascension, and coronation, he returns home to the Father and is able to say about believers and greater works than these they will do because I go to my Father. What we learn from this is that according to this great saying of our Lord, the greater works are the spiritual works. The miracles in this physical realm are subservient to those in the spiritual realm. The physical miracles are only a picture, a picture of the greater spiritual miracles that are to come. These physical miracles will then diminish in scope and frequency as the spiritual miracles grow throughout the whole world. With the promise of works in hand, Christ now turns to the promise of answered prayer. John 14, 13 through 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The word whatever here covers a lot of territory. It's speaking of both the great works and the greater works. Here Jesus makes clear the relation of these works to prayer. He shows there is certainly a connection between works and prayer. Throughout the New Testament, there's a clear link between works and prayer. Acts 4.31 And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the God, the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They prayed. They prayed, and the power was given to go forth with boldness in the gospel. My friends, that's what we want. We want the power of God working in us so we can go out and bring the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We want to tell them Jesus was sent into this world to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He came, he died, he won the resurrection victory in order that you might be reconciled to God the Father. You need to be telling everybody you meet about this gospel. And please, don't get upset about a witness. And I know so many churches have all kinds of different plans to teach people how to witness. You don't need that. You've already got what you need if you've got Jesus Christ in your heart. A witness is simply telling others what Jesus has done for you. It's showing them how Christ has made a difference in your life and telling them he can make a difference in your life as well. Only such prayers as these are brought in Christ's name. These prayers cannot be selfish, but must be in the interest of God's kingdom. They must come forth in faith and be in accordance with God's will. In other words, they must be presented not in my will, but in Christ's will, in God's will. Everything you do must be for glory, for God's glory, never for your own. A prayer in Christ's name, and this means not just using the Lord's name at the end of your prayer, but a prayer that is in harmony with whatever Christ has revealed of himself. His name is his self-revelation in his works. 
In the case we're considering here, it's his self-revelation in redemption. This is where the promise really stands out. A prayer brought in the will of God will always be answered. Why? Because the one who prays this way will always only want what Christ wants. So as Christ says, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Here on this table is the perfect picture of Christ glorifying the Father. He did the works required to bring you salvation and through these works glorifies the Father. When you come in prayer, when you come in prayer calling on Christ to work in the heart of a lost soul, you're joining, joining with God and with Christ and his plan to bring his people together in Jesus Christ. The fundamental truth here is that any prayer brought in Jesus' name by a believer will be answered. And this is true of all prayer. Christ himself will answer that prayer. He will grant the humble petition of his disciple. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We must not neglect the full meaning of these two verses. The disciples are told they must not only pray in Christ's name, but they must pray to Christ as well. If you ask anything in my name, thus we have the message that is there and there is the one in whose name we must pray. We must pray in Christ's name. He must also be the object of your prayer as well as the hearer of your prayer. You pray to him, he's the one that hears. So we learn through this promise. We learn all things go through Jesus Christ. Through him as the one shown on this table. What do you see as you observe this table? What stands out to you as you consider all Christ has done? These promises of works done in the Lord's name and the promise of answered prayer belong to all who come. They should be flashing signs, flashing signs for you of this great gospel of salvation. If you place your hope in Jesus as shown on this table, if you hear his call to tell others about all he has done, then you will walk in these two promises. Now, this has to be one of the great, greatest precepts Jesus gave to his followers. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my precepts. Is that hard? That doesn't sound too hard, does it? Now, we know it's a lot harder than what it sounds. In John 13, 34, he laid this, laid this precept out very clearly. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now you know, this can be a really hard thing for us to do. He's talking about us loving one another as members of the church, as fellow believers. And we're supposed to put aside all, all of our, our prejudices, all of our, our dislikes. And we're to come to the point we say, I love them because Jesus Christ loved me. They love him, therefore I must love them. 
Love is the key. If you take this conditional statement, if you love me, you will keep my precepts. And this are three words. Three words that predominate. Love, keep, and precept. Now William Hendrickson summarizes this this way. If with love that is both intelligent and purposeful, you love me, you will keep, obey, and stand guard over the precepts which I have laid down for the regulation of your inner attitudes and outer conduct. That covers it all, doesn't it? What this teaches is that the love, that love is the foundation upon which obedience is built. And obedience is, the, is grounded in the precepts of the Lord. Great promises give, given to those who love and keep the precepts of the Lord. The promise is, if you keep these precepts, there will be a great blessing. Verse 16, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. We hear Jesus as the mediator make a request in their interest, the interest of the disciples. Now please understand this. Disciples are not on a par with God's only begotten son. We see that in prayer. When they come to God, the disciples, they must implore. They must seek from God help. Jesus is the God-man. He's the, he has the right to ask for something for his disciples. He doesn't come imploring. He doesn't come seeking. He knows what the will of God is. He prays directly that way. Jesus promises that the Father will, in answer to his request, send another helper to his followers. It is promised that his disciples will have another comforter. This is the great New Testament promise found in Acts 1-4 when he says, wait for the promise of the Father. Who is given, giving this Holy Spirit? Who's giving this new helper? The Father will give him. Jesus is showing that it is his Father and your Father. The same that gave the Son to be your Savior will send the Spirit to be your comforter, filling out his plan of salvation. We also learn in this how this blessing is procured. It is gained through the intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 16 shows that this can be, I will pray for it. Jesus makes the statement in order to show that he is not only both God and man, but also that he is both king and priest. As priest, he's ordained for men to make intercession. As king, he's authorized by the Father to execute judgment. When he prays to the Father, it doesn't mean the Father may be unwilling or that the Father may be argued into it. It shows, as this table does, that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is a gift of Christ's mediation, purchased by his merits and taken out by his intercession, which is what we learn from the picture before us here on this table. This blessing is to be continuous. Verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Here's the promise of another helper. This new helper will be with you forever. You shall never know the want of a comforter. You shall never be brought to lamenting over his leaving. 
Christ wants his disciples to know that this comforter will never leave them as he has had to do. When Christ was with them, there were comforts that will appear, will disappear. In other words, they won't have him there. They can't go put their head on his shoulder and complain. He's gone. But this new comforter, this new comforter will be able to comfort them in ways they never expected. It was not expedient that Christ should be with them forever. To be their intercessor, it was much more important that Jesus be seated at the Father's right hand. His being seated at the Father's right hand shows that all the works necessary for them to be reconciled to God the Father has been completed. Those who have been called to be witnesses of this glorious gospel need not only a comforter in this world, but they also need an intercessor in heaven. These disciples were to be scattered around the world. They each had their task to fulfill. They needed a comforter, a comforter who would be everywhere and with each one of them at the same time. He could also be the comforter of those that follow in their word, such that across the ages, he comforts, guides, and teaches men in the art of bringing the gospel to every new generation. Who is this helper? Verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This new helper is the spirit of truth whom you can know. Surely these men were thinking how how can there be comfort that is equal to Christ? Yes, says the Lord, you shall have the Spirit of God who is equal in power and glory of the Son. This comforter is one who will do his work in spiritual ways and manner, inwardly and invisibly, by working in men's spirits. We don't see the Holy Spirit. Don't believe anybody tells you they saw the Holy Spirit, because they didn't. This promise includes that he, as the Spirit of truth, will be true to you. He will undertake for you those things you can't do for yourself. He'll perform his works to perfection on your behalf. He will teach you the truth. He will enlighten your mind. He will strengthen and confirm your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will increase your love for the truth of God's word. Matthew Henry says the Gentiles by their idolatries and the Jews by their traditions were led into gross error and mistakes. But the spirit of truth shall not only lead you into all truth, but others through your ministry will find that truth. Christ is the truth. He's the spirit of Christ. The spirit that was anointed by God the Father and sent into this world. What does it tell us about this spirit of truth? The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. As a believer... You know this spirit of truth. He has been given to you by the Father and the Son. In this we see the absolute exclusiveness of the church. No one, no one can know this spirit but those whom the Father draws. It's those and those only who are chosen and called out of this world which lies in wickedness. They're the children and heirs of another world not this evil and wicked world in which we live today. 
Those who cannot receive this spirit are those that are invincibly devoted to this world. The spirit of the world and the spirit of God are spoken of as directly contrary to one another. For where the spirit of the world has the ascendancy, the spirit of God is excluded. Therefore we learn that men cannot receive the spirit of truth because they neither see him nor know him. Here on this table is the representation of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you. He is the spirit of God. This spirit of truth is the spirit of Christ. They are both a part of the one God and they are equal in power and glory. This table shows us the triune God. It shows us how each person in the Trinity have participated to make our salvation a glorious event. Without the Father and the salvation he planned and watches over, there could never have been the sending of one into the world to do for men what they could never do for themselves. Without Jesus and his perfect life, atoning death and resurrection victory, there could never have been a spirit of truth. Without the sending of the Holy Spirit to build up the hearts of saved men, without the strength he gave them to go forth and witness to the lost souls of this world, there could never have been a church to hold up the banner of salvation. How is it that you as a believer can know the spirit of truth? The best knowledge of the spirit of truth is found in experience. The Lord tells you, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Christ had dealt with the disciples. By their acquaintance with him, they could not help but to know the Spirit. You have to ask what enabled them to leave everything and follow Christ in the first place. It had to be the work of the Spirit in their hearts. Who gave them the strength and courage to preach but the Holy Spirit working in their heart? How is it possible that demons could hear their words and tremble? What could have allowed them to do miracles but the Spirit of the living God working in them? The experiences of the saints are the fulfillment of these promises that brought the Holy Spirit into our lives. This gift of the Holy Spirit is a peculiar gift. It's bestowed on the disciples of Christ in a very distinguishing way. It is on them and not on the world. It is to them a hidden manna. It is a white stone with a new name written on it. This gift is the favor of God, the sign that bears his stamp upon the chosen. It is the heritage of those who fear his name. This promise of the spirit of truth is indeed a great gift that cannot be measured as to its value for every believer. Everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ and holds and trusts in Christ alone has been blessed by this great and this wonderful promise. At last, we come to a promise that should make your heart simply leap for joy. The promise is God's presence with you. Verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Jesus speaks these words. He speaks it to a group of men who are floundering. They're afraid. They don't see the hope that's ever before them. 
They're facing a few nights of darkness and despair. It seems to them that all is lost. So Jesus, in these words, leaves them the comfort. I will not leave you fatherless. What a promise these words relate. With Jesus leaving, they're left little to hold to. This promise gives them great hope. They're in fact here offered adoption in the family of God with the Holy Spirit as their guarantee. This assures them that Christ's Father will be their Father. This shows them that those who are once fatherless shall have mercy. Jesus is preparing them to remember the Lord's Supper they just ate. Jesus was sent into this world to do for them what they could never do for themselves. Once he begins such a love-centered work in their hearts, he will never leave them. They will never be alone. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, that applies to you as well. You will never be alone. Now I know. <laughs> I know there's some questions in minds this morning. I've heard them before. How is it that I can feel all alone and separated from God in my own heart? How can you say Jesus will never leave me? It sure feels like he does at times. This is a promise from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He promises no matter what, for those who truly place their hope in Jesus Christ, they shall never be left alone. We are told the just shall live by faith. Faith is believing God. You have a right. You have it right here before you. Right here in the Gospel of John chapter 14. The promise God will never leave you. No matter how far you fall. No matter how deep your despair. No matter how much the pain. God is with you. He will work to strengthen you and give you the courage to work through any problem. Not only does this mean in your everyday life, but it also means when the ages of time end, God will be present with you and he will take you to be with him in heaven. This is an eternal promise, a promise that shall never be lost, a promise that shall never know repentance. You can face life as a believer in Jesus Christ and not be fearful because God has made such a wonderful promise that should touch every believer's heart. These four promises are only part of all God has done to save a people to himself. These promises are displayed for all to see in this picture of this table. Every promise, every promise is grounded in the works of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world to save a people unto himself. He came and fulfilled everything, everything the law required for men to be reconciled to their God. Please, please open your ears to hear this glorious promise. Place your hope of salvation in this promise and in the one who made it. Salvation is a precious gift, and all four of these promises make that salvation even sweeter. Come to this table this morning. Come with these promises in your heart and on your mind so you can taste the sweetness of what this table really means. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we know you're the one, the whole family in heaven and on earth that derives its name. We ask you to pour out the riches of your glory on us. Strengthen us with your power through your spirit. Let Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. Establish us in your love so we can go into this world and show others your love, grace, and mercy through our lives. We give to him who saved us all glory. We ask you to help us as a church to minister to others and help them to see that salvation can be found only in this one you sent, your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.